Hi, everybody. You're listening to the 10th episode of the Hipster Baseball Podcast. We are, I am DeCarlo Calloway, alongside with Dorian. And on today's podcast, we're going crazy for gin. We continue our executive education in the business of baseball, getting rained out in Nicaragua, and sadly saying goodbye to an iconic telescope in Puerto Rico. So what's up, Dorian? How are you doing today, man? You know what I'm not? I'm not sad. I'm happy. Can you believe we've made it double digits? 10 episodes. <laughs> so on today's, today's episode, as Carlo mentioned, we're going crazy for gin today. I'm making, I've made myself a gin sour and I had pre-poured out. So what I used was a, what I used was the Kirkland Signature London Dry Gin, which is actually made here in America in Silverton, Ohio. Never heard of the place, but go them. And I'm making it with, uh, with Wegmans lemonade. So I'm going to pour it out for you right now. I'd already pre poured it out. So basically what it is, I have, it's basically two shots of gin and four shots of lemonade. I don't like to put. Hold on a second. Is this Kirkland signature gin from Costco? You better believe it, baby. America's favorite brand. That's some quality (laughs) stuff. That's some quality stuff. Tell me I'm lying. No, you're, you're not. That's true. They do have probably stuff. <laughs> yeah. So this is my version of the gin sour because I don't, I don't like putting, putting syrup in my drinks because it's usually made out of corn syrup. And again, as we had said a few episodes ago, your body's a temple. You got to know what you put into it. All right, let's get to the drink. I like history. We love gin. So I'm going to talk about the gin craze in 17th century England. Now, the Protestant King William III of Orange brought gin into England from his native Netherlands in 1688. This happened after the Glorious Revolution, in which he overthrew the Catholic King James II, who was also his father-in-law. This is family feud, 17th century style. So King James's daughter, Mary, was married to William. But wait, it gets worse. William and Mary were also first cousins. I'm going to barf. <laughs> Gross. Interesting tidbit. The College of William and Mary down in Williamsburg, Virginia, is named after him and his queen slash wife slash first cousin, Mary. Gross. You know, he was like four foot 11, right? I, that I did not know. Yeah, he was really, really short. In uh, Northern Ireland, they have a statue of him which is supposed to be like an actual like recreation of how he would have looked. And he was like a really, really short guy. Well, I'm sure he was a very tall and debonair for the 17th century. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it was crazy. Like five, three, five, five was like tall. Edward yeah. Longshanks was like, I think, I don't know, maybe like five, seven or maybe he, six. He, no, he was like six foot or something. Like he that. was playing center for the Miami heat. So, uh, you know, that's, he, he was patrolling the paint. <laughs> All right. Back to the 17th century. So, <laughs> Back in 1690, when King William III was installed as King of England, he encouraged distilling liquors because he was banning French brandy from being imported into England. Because as usual, France and Britain were at war. Uh, But uh, what he said was that there would be no regulation of the trade, no permits needed, anybody could set up shop. The problem was that you had no idea what was in your drink. So potentially you can get sick, at worst, you die. And the reason wine, wine, the reason wine and brandy were banned was because they were seen not only coming from France, but they were seen as foreign and Catholic. And in last week's episode nine, we mentioned that England was a Protestant country and they were always at war and always against Catholic countries like Spain and France. So 
it's it's interesting to, to note that gin was a liberating experience for English women because it attracted women to the business of distilling, and they also drank it. So women became business owners during this whole gin boom, and uh, the English called this new liquor Madame Jennifer. Jennifer is the Dutch word for juniper. I don't know if DiCarlo can help my Dutch pronunciation, but no. I'm just going with Jennifer. <laughs> So juniper is the berry associated with gin, and it eventually became abbreviated from Jennifer to gin. And uh, here's another interesting tidbit. Gin was the reason that the first vending machine was oh, invented. Hold on a second. So they must have been spelling it with G-I-N-N-F, or like, you know how like some- Jennifer. Yeah, like Jennifer instead of like Jennifer, like with the J. Well, so yeah, forgive my pronunciation or spell it, spelling, ladies, because I, I'm a terrible speller. But uh, without but without spell check, I would be in the third grade. So, but anyway, yeah, just a little interesting thing to think about when you said like it went from Jennifer to gin. Yeah, you're right. It would probably win Jennifer. But uh, so gin was the reason that the first vending machine in history was invented. It was called the, the Puss and Mew machine. It was also known as uh, Bradstreet's cat. It was invented by a 28 year old Irishman from County Tipperary named Captain Dudley Bradstreet. Now, Bradstreet persuaded a lawyer, uh, a friend of his who was a lawyer, to rent a house in London. And on outside of this house, he mounted a cat on the outside wall. And it was a huge hit. Business was booming. Dudley's initial investment went, his initial investment, he had a seven-fold return three months after he set up his crazy vending machine. And in, in his memoirs, titled, the life and uncommon adventures of Captain Dudley Bradstreet. He wrote, quote, from all parts of London, people used to resort to me in such numbers that my neighbors could scarcely get in or out of their houses, end quote. And now the way the Puss and Mew machine worked was, again, it was a model of a cat. You would go up to the cat and say, Puss, I'd like some gin. If the seller inside the house had some gin, he or she would say, Mew. <laughs> you... You would then put your money into the mouth of the cat and some gin would come out of the cat's paw. It would also go directly into your mouth. And uh, in, in, in COVID-19 times, clearly these people back in the 17th century had no concept of personal hygiene. Here's the last thing of the gin craze. The Puss and Mew is, has been revived by a local distillery in the town of York, which is in the north of England. I've been there many times. And for those of you that are planning to go there sometime soon or live there, uh, the, the the distillery is called the York Gin, and it's also located very close to the Viking Center. It's a huge tourist spot. Uh, now, the York Gin redesigned the Puss and Mew to keep customers safe from coronavirus because they believe in hygiene, and they unveiled it on the 3rd of July, back in 3rd of July in 2020. Now, they call their contraption the York Gin Perspex, and how it works is that a shop assistant pours the gin down a tube through a hole in the Perspex glass and into the customer's disposable cup, not their mouth. What this means is that both the customer and the shop and the staff can socially distance while discussing the delicious gins. So cheers to King William III of Orange and women-owned gin businesses. That was a very thorough history lesson on the origin of gin. <laughs> Oh, it was good. It was Beautiful. I, I, you have, I enjoyed researching that. So I already knew a little bit about that, but I loved it. I, I love, I love that. You know, it's a funny thing is that considering that that all took place during 
the time period in which I actually have a master's degree in history. So thank you. <laughs> and you drank gin during your entire uh, master's. Uh... No, I didn't. I was really a Guinness guy. Uh, I I like stouts, and it was and it was always good to drink when watching like soccer and stuff. But I'm also on the gin craze today too. But I felt like I should spice up my drink selections a little bit because you know Dorian always has these really really nice like stories and and you know informative things about the the alcohol or even just the regular drinks that he's drinking so i'm like all right let me do a little something else myself so today i am drinking homemade ginger punch with gin so i found this recipe for one let me just give a little like pre-context during this whole pandemic i've really found myself tapping into a lot of like interest of mine and i've always been involved in like cooking and making drinks i bartended for years um, just to get through life. Um, but I'm like, you know, let me see what else. So I got this one cookbook and it's titled Jubilee Rep Recipes from Two Centuries of African American Cooking by Tony Tipton Martin. And just the recipe, it calls for half a pound of fresh ginger, one cup of honey, or if you don't have honey, one and one, and one uh, half cups of sugar, a quarter teaspoon of salt, half a cup of fresh lemon or lime juice, six cups of still or sparkling water. Like if you wanted to use sparkling water, that would give it more of a ginger beer type of flavor and then ice cubes. So first, the first step is, is you're gonna scrub the ginger with a brush to clean off any dirt and cut quarter inch thick slices of the ginger. Uh, don't peel the ginger. So just cut quarter inch slices with the skin on. In a sauce pot, you're gonna combine the ginger in two cups of water. Let's put it on high heat first to bring it to a boil and then reduce the heat to low, cover the sauce pot and then simmer gently until you have a strong infusion of the gin into the water. You're gonna let that simmer for about 20 minutes. You can add a quarter cup of, at a time of water to keep the ginger covered if needed. Um, otherwise, you just leave it alone for that time. Once it's the 20 minutes is up and the water and the gin has been infused, you're going to stir in honey or sugar. No, yeah, stir in your honey or your sugar, your salt and lemon juice, cool completely, strain and chill. And then to serve it, you're going to put the six cups of either still water or sparkling water uh, to the brew and then serve it over ice. And I added a little gin with it too. Um, if you want to add vodka and if you have a copper cup, you can kind of do like a Moscow meal type of thing with it. It's really, really good. Um, and it's a perfect sweetness. You know, some drinks can be really, really harsh. I use honey instead of the sugar, so it definitely hit better and it is a treat. So if you guys are interested in making your own homemade punches and juices, this is one that I definitely recommend that you, uh, utilize in the future. That's beautiful. And you know what else is beautiful? Everyone, everyone can enjoy a drink. And what we want you to do, listener, is when you're enjoying this podcast, when you're listening to the pod, this podcast, tweet us a picture of what you're drinking, and we're going to retweet the best ones. Our Twitter handle is at HBP4040. And remember to use the hashtag HBPDrink. And in our gin craze, we talked about the return on investment of Captain Bradley and his awesome <laughs> busted Mew machine. And what that means is it's always business time in baseball. And so we're going to continue our executive education in baseball. And we're going to talk about something very sexy, very exciting, 
Tax credits. That's right, tax credits. We're going to talk about the Chicago, the Chicago Cubs and the, the fact that the Chicago Cubs play in, in an old historic ballpark called Wrigley Field. Back in September, Wrigley Field was designated as a national historic landmark by the Department of Interior. And what that does is that allows the Ricketts family, which owns the Chicago Cubs, to potentially tap into between 100 to $150 million in tax credits. And we're going to go into that in just a few moments. Quick history. Wrigley Field was actually designed by Zachary Taylor Davis, and it's been the home of the Cubs since 1916. So Mr. Davis also designed the old Comiskey Park where the Chicago White Sox used to play. And he also helped design, DeCarlo's going to love this one, he, he was one of the architects for the original Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. So the Ricketts family, who owned the Chicago Cubs, they first applied to they first applied to have the Wrigley to have Wrigley Field designated as a national historic landmark back in 2013. So it's been a while. And what in the world is a tax credit, and why are we talking about it, Dorian? I'm going to tell you, a tax credit is a dollar for dollar reduction of the income tax you owe as an individual or a corporation. For example, if you owe $1,000 in federal taxes, but are eligible for a $1,000 tax credit, you're, guess what you now owe? Zero. An, uh, an accountant friend of mine who I also went to business school told me, tax credits are more powerful than tax deductions. Remember this when you're doing your taxes in the springtime every year. It's not about tax deductions, it's about gaining tax credits. So. What does this all mean for in, in, in what does this mean for baseball? The Ricketts renovated Wrigley Field back in 2014 and they called it the 1060 project. Have you ever been to Chicago and to Wrigley Field? That whole area outside of the stadium has now become real estate, basically, bars, restaurants, hotels. Uh, the project also added new video sco uh, scoreboards, clubhouse amenities to Wrigley Field, and it was the biggest renovation in Wrigley Field's history. The total cost of those renovations were estimated to be about half a billion dollars. Now, with their landmark designation, the federal they're eligible for the Federal Historic Preservation Tax Incentive Programs, which offers a 20% rehabilitation tax credit. So this basically a tax credit is a Black Friday sale for billionaires like the Ricketts family. And why am I taking issue with this? Wrigley Field is a beautiful stadium. It's historic. It's part of the American cultural fabric. I'll tell you why. Back, uh, actually earlier this month, the Chicago Cubs let go of 25% of their front office staff, 25% of the entire baseball operation staff. They let go. Why? Because we lost so much money over the 2020 COVID-19 season. Really? Excuse me, Mr. Ricketts, you are now going to be able to not pay over $100 million. You're going to tell me that the, your payroll taxes for those 25% of your staff is, exceeds $100 million? That's crazy. Another, another point of this, we've lost so much money in the, in the 2020 COVID season. John Middleton, who's the, who's the majority owner of the Philadelphia, Philly, uh, Philadelphia Phillies, 
He told the New York Daily News that the Phillies lost $145 million in 2020. The Ricketts family, who owns the Chicago Cubs, said we lost between $100 million to $125 million. It all seems suspiciously, too suspiciously square. Everything is nice and round. Everything is right on the button. I don't believe these owners when they say that they all lost basically the same amount of money. Uh, um, look, yeah. Jesse Rogers from the from ESPN said that the Cubs lost between 125 to 140 million. Uh, it's it, very interesting that it's in these like hundred million dollar ranges. You know what I mean? It's like let's find that one those number figures that tend to be around. So, you know, like how is it evenly coming to that? number in most of these cases really we'll never know DiCarlo because these baseball clubs never ever open their books never and that's always a point of contention when they have when they go into labor negotiations with the players because they never allow the players to see exactly how much money they're making uh, and they're not losing money I'm telling you right now those clubs are not losing money and if you're about to receive a windfall of over $100 million in tax credits from the federal government, Ricketts family, Chicago Cubs, you cannot cry poor. You cannot cry poor and then basically let go. Fire basically is what you're doing. 25% of your staff, of your salary, of your salaries, of your staff. I, it's the high, it's hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy. I, I can't, I can't stand for that. It's, so again, Congratulations to the Ricketts family, Chicago Cubs, the city of Chicago, and, and Cubs Nation, whatever they're called, the Cubbies of the world, for having the Wrigley Field be designated a National Historic Landmark. But shame on you, Ricketts family, for being able to pocket over $100 million and not paying taxes because, what did I say, class? Tax credits are more powerful than tax deductions. And the Ricketts family let go of 25% of the baseball operations. HBP does not like that. Not at all. Not cool at all. But it's really interesting how this uh, baseball season has put a lot of, uh, regardless, you know, because at this point, of course, we know that, you know, big, big money businesses always usually find the loopholes and ways to be able to hold on to a lot more money. That's why they always stay at the top. But um, regardless, people have been hit economically speaking. I mean, not to the extent of, say, your average individual who probably was working a service job. Um, depended on tips and now does not have a restaurant job to go to and is struggling. But as compared to say like a big mega corporation or baseball club in these cases, but one baseball club that is actually coming into the 2021 season really flush and in a better competitive position is the New York Mets. And I know we, we mentioned it in previous episodes about how they were recently acquired by Steve Cohen, who's a Long Island native hedge fund billionaire. And this team that's always been the butt of the jokes at the winter meetings, you know, who always been uh, ridiculed for being uh, like, what's his name? Uh, Scott Boris was always say that they were, uh, I, I paraphrase, they were shopping in the frozen food or the, uh, or the produce section because they never really were trying to go after <laughs> the big meat or the big free agents. They were always very austere. And now that, this season has pretty much crippled a lot of teams, or at least openly speaking, they're not going out of their way to sign top-notch free agents or even letting their agent, you know, free agents or people who they would assign normally 
in a regular season, after a regular season, just uh, enter the free agency market. The Mets, they don't have that issue. You know, they're going to resign. They've, they've elevated Sandy Alderson to the president of baseball operations. He got rid of the front room staff. Um, Steve Cohen has said he's going to take a really like hands-off approach because for one, he doesn't know how to run a baseball team and he's just focusing on trying to find executives who do have that experience that this investment is going to allow the Mets to really upgrade their analytics because they've been really running behind a lot of other teams in terms of being able to analyze and collect data on their players or scouting reports on player potential players or, um, players within their farm system so it's going to help them do that they're going to definitely sign a couple free agents everybody's talking about them um probably um signing trevor bauer um what is it the short uh shortstop from cleveland indians maybe trading for francisco Lidor is the yeah francisco Lidor. um so you know they're definitely in a position that they have him. And they do have solid pitching with uh, Jacob DeGrom. You have Noah Syndergaard coming back off of uh, surge after elbow surgery. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Mets move around this offseason. And now that they have cash and a lot of other teams don't at this point. So, those, those, these baseball owners, talking about the Ricketts and everyone else who cry poor, the Ricketts family is incredibly wealthy. They think their net worth is over $3 billion. The The owners of the the Dolans, does that ring a bell to Carlo? The the Dolans yep. run the Cleveland Indians. They have also they also have a net worth of over three billion dollars. The Nolan, the Nolans, the Dolans who run the Cleveland Indians are cousins of your favorite owner of the New York Knicks slash the New York Rangers slash the favorite the, the great the greatest blues player of all time. JD and the straight shots, man. <laughs> so the, I, I, let me get to my, back to my quick point here. These baseball owners have no idea who is among, amongst them now. Steve Cohen is not to be played with. And, and I'm going to give you a quick tidbit. Steve Cohen owns a piece of art from the famous artist named uh, Damien Hurst. It's called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. What the hell is that? What are you talking about? Is this a baseball podcast or an art podcast? Is this a drinking podcast or a baseball podcast? So anyways, what in the world is the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living? It's actually a tiger. It's a tiger shark preserved in uh, formaldehyde. He bought that for $8 million. Steve Cohen, the new owner of the New York Mets back in 2006. This man is that shark. When all of these owners who are billionaires are crying poor, he is going to pounce and eat them alive. Mark my words. This man is not to be trifled with. No, even though, and it's funny because when you look at him, he seems like such a like doughy, like Long Island kid you would have saw like coming out of high school. But yeah, his mentality is of an apex predator who will bite your head off if he is hungry, like, or even just because, not even because he's hungry, just because he can do it. So it will be interesting to see how he uh, operates within this uh, new environment. And of course, like his comments are playing it coy. It's all public relations because when you're in a position like that, when you're like that, you don't want people to 
to, to see you in that way, especially when you're making new strides. You want to catch them off guard. You want to seem like you're sympathetic. You want to seem like you're not taking an inch, you know, just hands off. I'm just investing. I'm letting the actual people. But don't, yeah, don't get it twisted. He's definitely going to be playing for, for keeps in this position. And in Latin America, they're still playing baseball. In America, we're just talking about baseball, but they're still playing baseball in Latin America. Again, the Winter League's going on in Puerto Rico, in Dominican Republic, in Nicaragua, in Colombia. And I want to talk a little bit about the Nicaraguan Winter League. And I feel like there's a bad luck juju that I've got going on here. But I I want to update you guys on some players because a few episodes ago, we said that because there was no minor league minor league season in the U.S., a lot of those minor league players weren't able to play, and so a lot of them went to Latin America to have comp- competitive at bats, competitive pitches, and they're being watched very carefully. One of those guys that impressed me was this uh, th- this Dominican infielder from San Pedro de Marcoris, Dominican Republic. He plays for Tren del Norte, which is in the city, in the small town of Esteli, which is up in the north of Nicaragua by the mountains. His name's Hector Gomez. He had an amazing play against, uh, I forget who, against Boer from the capital, Managua. Boer, as they would say in South Africa, like the actual Boers. That's the name of the team. And he had a, he had an amazing throw from his knees to first base. I was like, I stood, I, I just... I stood up. I was like, what? Who is this guy? This guy's awesome. And he's actually, he's uh, he's been with the Colorado Rockies and the Milwaukee Brewers. So, again, this is some guy who's, this is a guy who's playing for his next contract. Another guy who's playing for his next contract is the third baseman from Rivas, which is also another town located right on the, this lake in Nicaragua. It's actually, it's very beautiful. His name is uh, Chester Colbert. And he plays third base for, the, for Rivas, like I said. And he said that, this is him saying three major league baseball teams have already sent him offers. He's the, he's hitting, I think 453 in the Nicaragua winter league right now. He's the second best one, the second best batting average. And he's from corn islands, Nicaragua. I'm going to talk about corn islands, Nicaragua in a future episode. That place is unbelievably interesting, but um, it sounds like it's interesting. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And it is actually a very interesting history. And I will come back to this in a future episode. He, uh, Chesler is in part of the Chicago White Sox minor league organization, but of course he wants a major league contract. So we were talking about earlier about rain, getting rained out in Nicaragua. Carlo, I am so surprised there were two games I watched that were rained out, basically. And there, again, it rains all over the earth. We live on this planet. Look, but there was one. There are two specific games. Rivas, again, Chester's team against Boer in the capital. This game was in Managua in the in Dennis Martinez Stadium, which we had said in the earlier episode is up to Major League Baseball specs. It's a beautiful stadium. From I've never been there, but it looks beautiful on on TV. Or on YouTube, which then I just cast it on my television. It was raining. They didn't, the field managers, the field managers, the, they didn't roll out the tarps as you would normally see in a baseball, in in a, in in here in, for Major League Baseball. It just let it rain. They just let it rain. And ultimately they called the game and they, they're going to replay those games. Two days later on the 22nd of November, 
Drenden Norte from Esteli, Hector Gomez's team against Boa, again, the team from Managua, also in Dennis Martinez Stadium. No tarp. All they did was put a small tarp over home plate, but nothing over the infield to stop it from flooding. Well, I mean, you would think that it's if it's MLB specs, it's not going to flood. It's going to have tremendous drainage system, but it's just weird seeing all that rain fall on the infield. And I was like, am I? <laughs> Every time I watch a game played in Dennis Martinez Stadium, it gets either rain delayed or rained out. But talking about bad luck, we're going to hop over to Cuba, everybody. Okay, stay cool. We're in Latin America right now. We're going from Nicaragua. We're flying over to Cuba. And I, had, I keep saying Cuba is actually not part of the Winter Leagues because Cuba, there are no... There are no players from outside of Cuba in the national in the, in the baseball league because they're communist and they don't you know people don't people don't go there to make money. <laughs> you don't go to a communist co- country to be an entrepreneur. We're going to no. leave politics to the side. The best team in Cuba is called Matanzas, and they have a record of thirty four wins, twenty losses. And I saw two games against uh, Santi Spiritus, which is Latin for Holy Spirit. These are the two best teams in the Cuban baseball uh, league. I don't know why Matanzas is the best. It has the best record because every time I watch them, they lose. <laughs> I'm bad luck for them. And I'm just surprised that their defense is so bad in the first inning of every game. I'm not talking about just these past two games that I saw them play against Santi Spiritus. Every time I watch Matanzas play over the past month, they always fall behind in the first inning. And, how are you the best team or how do you have the best record if you're always falling behind by two and four runs every single every single beginning of the inning? But they, they I will say this. Matances is good enough that as the game go, rolls out, they actually put up runs, they come back, and they make it close. But I'm like, the statistical probability, again, executive education and business, this is the statistical probability is telling you that more often than not, you aren't going to be able to completely come back because you put yourself in such a hole. So I'm not impressed by their defense. I'm not. Uh, so Matanzas, I'm sure they're going to go on and be at least be in the championship, but I'm just surprised. And Well, sadly, yeah. these, these leagues seem more like, a, I don't know, at least a Cuban league considering – that it's kind of just all over the place. It's kind of just like, seems like it's, a, it's just a bunch of dudes from the neighborhood coming and playing. No, I, I don't want to give out that impression either. These yeah. these dudes are are actually pretty good, and believe me, they're a lot better than we are. But they're, they're really good, and they're, listener, they are worth watching on YouTube. They play the games live, or you can go back and watch them uh, recorded, which I like to do that way. You can skip by the the changes of innings and the uh, the replays and stuff. I actually do like in the Nicaraguan league when they do double headers, it's just like the, the 2020 MLB season. Yeah. It's seven innings every game. I love that. It's over quick if it's double if it's double header. I don't know if it's that's good. This it's gonna say the same in in the in the following winter league, but I found that interesting. I liked. But speaking of bad luck, speaking of the spirits, speaking of 2020 COVID-19, we're gonna have to bring in our sponsor this time. The Psychic Friends Network. Answers you need are just a phone call away. In these uncertain times, it would be nice to know what will happen to our health, our loved ones, and our career. What are the important questions in your life? Give Psychic Friends Network a try for only $4.99 per minute. Everyone can benefit from talking to a psychic. 
mental and spiritual relief is now available. Psychic Friends Network. The answers you need are just a phone call away. Call now. That was so smooth. Thank you. Thank you. Very Thank much. you to Psychic Friends Network for providing us our Costco gin. And <laughs> <laughs> the Psychic Friends Network would have been awesome if we were able to call them up and know what would have happened in Puerto Rico back in August. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened in Puerto Rico in August, DeCarlo? Yes, I will. People who haven't heard is uh, the Arecibo Telescope. So for those who have a little bit of an idea, it's just was this big ass telescope in Puerto Rico? Uh, at one point, it was the largest. Uh, De Carlo, let me let me just say that's a sign. That's the scientific term, big ass telescope. Yes, exactly. Uh, it was the largest radio uh, telescope on the planet, and it was originally um, constructed to try to hear quasars and sing, like sim signals or radio signals, not quasars. Excuse me, uh, radio signals that could be translated from other planets in search of trying to find extraterrestrial life. And if anybody who is a pop culture nerd or likes Jodie Foster, it was the telescope site in the movie Contact where her um, character first is doing research and then uh, and meets Matthew McConaughey and they have their little like love interest stuff. So it's pretty devastating to sit back and see how it just like broke broke apart but it also was a symbol i think of like the last couple of years in regards to how um like science has been thrown to the back burner in essence and when you allow sites like arecibo who you know whose mission is to try to find and search for radio waves that could potentially put us in contact with other um creatures or even just using using it for other features because radio um telescopes and that technology a lot of other useful applications but it's sad that it's just completely like destroyed and and also it's not just Jodie Foster fans it's also Nata Natasha Henstridge fans is that is that her last name Natasha Henstridge Hendridge yeah Hendridge from the movie from the mid-1990s movie Species the, uh, the Arecibo telescope is also was also featured in the movie Species which is uh it's a great movie for uh, young adolescent males <laughs> to watch. By the way, people, this Adesibo Telescope segment is part of our unsolicited advice segment. Why? Because specifically, the Adesibo Telescope was, was completed back in 1963, the height of the space race. And unfortunately, back in August of 2020, a, one of the cables... We would, we would like for you to go and actually look up on your internet device, whatever. Look up Adesivo Telescope. It is absolutely massive. And one of the cables that hold it up together broke. And one of those cables holds nine holds a 900-ton platform. Wow. You can't just go down to Home Depot or Lowe's to, to get, <laughs> to get <laughs> some. 900-ton platform? No, it just... It, and, and the point is that uh, I think... I think uh, the University of Central Florida was was splitting the bill of, of the maintenance of the Arecibo Telescope along with NASA and I forget what other agencies. The, at the, the, this is a science podcast masquerading as a drinking podcast, masquerading as a baseball, baseball podcast. podcast yeah. 
And you history. Know, you forgot history because that's we true. Cover a lot of and history. history. And business. And business. Yeah. And Pat says, well, we love them. But <laughs> astronomers, if you, if any of you guys follow uh, astronomer tw uh, Twitter handles, if I'm sure everyone who listens to this follows or astronomer like Twitter, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Those, yeah, it, it, but, that, he, but those guys are super famous. But I'm talking about like people who are not famous who are just love or have their PhD in astronomy. This was a huge I'm, deal. I'm sorry to say, are there even still PhD programs in astronomy? Of course there are. I know. I'm so just earlier, the, er, earlier in this month of November, astronomy Twitter is what I'm going to call it, was not ablaze, but just so mournful of the destruction of the Arecibo telescope. It, 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 we can't get so much, we're not gonna be able to get into how important that is into the study of the stars and everything else that happens over the, as has happened over the past 50 years um, in Puerto Rico. But what the reason why this is part of our unsolicited advice is that we're talking about the federal government not willing to pony up money to fix this telescope. Is it beyond repair? That's what some people say. I don't believe that. DiCarlo, this is America. Anything is possible here. If we, we, if we direct the correct resources, brain power and money, we can make the Arecibo telescope back and better than ever. And the, the thing is that the Arecibo telescope isn't the, the biggest or the best telescope any, anymore because in China, they actually have, um, they actually have a, um, a new telescope called the Aperture Spherical Telescope, which is, which is called FAST. And it's larger than, than the Arecibo telescope, but it just doesn't have the transmission capability. It's kind of important to be able to transmit the information that the telescope is seeing to be able to put it down in your computers. Otherwise, what's the point of even having it? Yeah. But again, we want Congress, we want the president, we want you to write to your congressman, write to your senator, get this issue and let's fund the rebuilding of the Adesivo Observatory in Puerto Rico because it is unbelievably important. And less we want to speak to aliens. I'm just joking. <laughs> sure, I guess. So, uh, yes. So, uh, that's surreal. Yeah. And the truth is out uh, there, remember. The truth is somewhere out there. And you know what else is out there? A bunch of dogs. Dogs are always running around everywhere. Talking about the, Nor the Nicaraguan Winter League, they had an unofficial, they had an unofficial bark in the park. There was some random street dog in the, st in the stands. <laughs> Um, behind home plate a few weeks ago uh, in, in a game between <laughs> Boer and uh, Rende Norte. And I, I, I kept looking and I'm like, that, I know I just didn't see some random dog. And, he, and he, this is Latin America. It's like some random street dog. And he was just back there, like sniffing, looking yeah. for food. I have no idea. But we love pets here. We love science. We love drinks. And again, we love our furry friends. So we want you, listener, to tweet us a picture of your pet listening to, HB, to the HBP podcast, or doing what they do best, which is sleeping. So when you do that, we're going to retweet them. And right, and again, our Twitter handle is at HBP4040. And remember to use the hashtag HBPets. That's HBP, 
ETS. All right. And that's a wrap, everybody. We want to thank you for listening again. So if you are a first time listener, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and give us a review. We'd like to know how you think of what we are doing here. Follow us on Twitter at HBP4040, and our drinks will be in the show notes. Join us next time. Peace out.